Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning into Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 24th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast first thing. This coming from KCRG. Dense fog, areas of precipitation with slick spots not totally ruled out. With temperatures still close to freezing in the early morning hours, any precipitation could still lead to some area roadways turning slippery. A dense fog advisory is in effect for a good portion of eastern Iowa this morning, where areas of dense fog have developed. Visibility may be reduced to a quarter mile or less at times, so be ready for that potential hazard as you head out and about this morning. Where temperatures are at 32 degrees or less, a few slick spots could develop as a result of the moisture from the fog. So far on Wednesday morning, temperatures have been near or above freezing in most cases. We're seeing fewer readings now below freezing compared to Tuesday morning, which is a little good news for road condition threats. However, anything right at the 32-degree mark is risky with the potential for your particular neighborhood to be colder than the official observation in your city. This still means that slick spots may develop, either due to freezing of moisture already on pavement or from falling rainfall as it hits the surfaces. As a result, we still recommend using a little extra care when driving or walking this morning, especially on lesser or untreated paved surfaces. Add a little extra time to your commute plans, slow down a bit, and leave more space between you and the vehicle in front of you. Just employ the usual tips and tricks we've become accustomed to over the last few weeks of especially harsh winter weather. Areas of rainfall pass through during the morning hours today, generally winding down by midday as they push to the northeast out of your area. Temperatures will again climb toward the mid-30s, with everyone in a similarly small temperature range again today due to widespread clouds. Visibility may improve a bit this afternoon, but dense fog could redevelop later today into tonight. This is again ahead of another round of precipitation that moves in toward Thursday's daytime hours, leading to a wet start to the day that will likely linger into the afternoon and evening for many of us. With this round, wintry precipitation, such as freezing rain, will be even more scarce as our atmosphere warms a slight amount. Still, temperatures will be close to freezing to start on Thursday, especially in our far northern counties, so we cannot totally rule out a few slick areas forming on Thursday. After residual rainfall exits early on Thursday night, we're likely to settle in for several days of dry but still somewhat gloomy weather. Clouds will remain common into the weekend, with highs and lows staying in a similar small range as we've seen the past few days. Fog will remain a threat too, with moisture being added beneath that cloud layer by continued melting of our snowpack. Cloud cover may slowly show some less widespread coverage as we go through the following work and school week, which would be a welcomed change of pace after a handful of gray days. Temperatures also look to slowly warm 
into the end of January and the start of February, with readings perhaps reaching 40 degrees by the start of the year's second month. Now let's turn to the front page of The Courier today. The headline on the lead story, Trump, Biden, win New Hampshire primaries. November election rematch appears increasingly likely. The story comes to us from the Associated Press and begins with a photograph of former President Donald Trump at a rally in New Hampshire. The dateline is Manchester, New Hampshire. Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary Tuesday, tightening his grip on the Republican presidential nomination and bolstering the likelihood of a rematch later this year against President Joe Biden. The result was a setback for former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who finished in second place after investing significant time and financial resources into winning the state. She was the last major challenger in the GOP race after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis ended his presidential bid over the weekend, allowing her to campaign as the sole alternative to Trump. Haley intensified her criticism of the former president, questioning his mental acuity and pitching herself as a unifying candidate who would usher in generational change. The appeals failed to resonate with enough voters. Trump can now boast of being the first Republican presidential candidate to win open races in Iowa and New Hampshire since both states began leading the election calendar in 1976. A striking sign of how rapidly Republicans rallied around him to make him their nominee for the third consecutive time. By posting easy wins in both early states, Trump demonstrated an ability to unite the GOP's factions. He's garnered support from the evangelical conservatives who are influential in Iowa and New Hampshire's more moderate voters, strength he hopes to replicate as the primary quickly expands to the rest of the United States. President Joe Biden won New Hampshire's largely symbolic Democratic primary Tuesday, prevailing in an unusual write-in effort after he refused to campaign or appear on the ballot in the state. Biden easily bested two long-shot challengers, Minnesota Representative Dean Phillips and self-help author Marianne Williamson, who were on the ballot along with a host of little-known names. His victory in a race he was not formally contesting essentially cements Biden's grasp on the Democratic nomination for a second term. The New Hampshire race will likely not count toward amassing delegates for the presidential nomination after Democrats in the state bucked a Biden-championed revamp of the primary calendar that placed South Carolina at the fore of the Democratic race for the White House. Haley was unable to capitalize on New Hampshire's more moderate political tradition. Now, her path to becoming the GOP standard-bearer is narrowing quickly. She won't compete in a contest that awards delegates until South Carolina's February 24th primary. As the state's former governor, she's hoping a strong showing there could propel her into the March 5th Super Tuesday contests. But in a deeply conservative state where Trump is exceedingly popular, those ambitions may be tough to realize, 
and a home state loss could prove politically devastating. Trump's position in the contest is remarkable, considering he faces 91 criminal charges related to everything from seeking to overturn the 2020 presidential election to mishandling classified documents and arranging payoffs to a porn actress. He left the White House in 2021 in the grim aftermath of an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol led by his supporters who sought to stop the certification of Biden's win. And Trump was the first president to be impeached twice. But Trump turned those vulnerabilities into an advantage among GOP voters. He argued that the criminal prosecutions reflect a politicized Justice Department, though there's no evidence that officials there were pressured by Biden or anyone else in the White House to file charges. Trump nonetheless repeatedly told his supporters that he's being prosecuted on their behalf, an argument that appears to have further strengthened his bond with the GOP base. As Trump begins to pivot his attention to Biden and a general election campaign, the question is whether the former president's framing of the legal cases will persuade voters beyond the GOP base. Trump lost the popular vote in the 2016 and 2020 elections and has faced particular struggles in suburban communities from Georgia to Pennsylvania to Arizona that could prove decisive in the fall campaign. Beyond the political vulnerabilities associated with the criminal cases, Trump faces a logistical challenge in balancing trials and campaigning. He has frequently appeared voluntarily at a New York courtroom where a jury is considering whether he should pay additional damages to a columnist who last year won a $5 million jury award against Trump for sex abuse and defamation. He has turned these appearances into campaign events, holding televised news conferences that give him an opportunity to spread his lies to a larger audience. He has no choice but to appear in court when the criminal cases begin, which could happen later this spring. Biden faces his own challenges, though of a different magnitude. There are widespread concerns about his age at 81 years old. Dissent is also building within his party over Biden's allegiance with Israel in its war against Hamas, putting the president's standing at risk in swing states like Michigan. Biden championed new Democratic National Committee rules that have its 2024 primary beginning on February 3rd in South Carolina, rather than in Iowa or New Hampshire. That left him in something of an awkward position at the outset of the nomination process. Next is a story written by Tom Barton, Reynolds vows to never back down on abortion during rally. Dateline Des Moines. Governor Kim Reynolds and Republican Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd on Monday reaffirmed their commitment to defend Iowa's halted law that bans abortions early in pregnancy. The pair spoke during an anti-abortion rally at the Iowa State Capitol on the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision overturned by the court in June 2022 that provided a federally protected right to abortion. 
lawmakers last year passed and Reynolds signed into law House File 732, which remains tied up in court, during a rare special session of the legislature. It would change the amount of time women have to seek an abortion, from 20 weeks post-fertilization to as little as six weeks, before many women even know they're pregnant. The legislation prohibits abortions after cardiac activity is detected in an embryo. It includes exceptions for rape and incest and medical emergencies. A Polk County District Court judge granted a request from Iowa abortion providers to halt enforcement of the new restrictions until its constitutionality can be considered by the courts. Reynolds and Byrd have asked the state Supreme Court to allow the new law to go into effect. Quote, it truly was an act of courage and conviction that will ultimately save precious lives, the governor said, of passing bills in 2018, and again last year, that would ban nearly all abortions. Quote, as we continue to fight in the courts, I want to thank you for putting Iowa firmly on the side of life, unquote. Since both the U.S. and Iowa Supreme Courts overturned the right to an abortion, Reynolds said, quote, the abortion industry and its allies have sunk to new lows in their attacks on the unborn, unquote. Quote, in this environment, there are those who say the pro-life movement should back down, the governor continued. They say that standing unapologetically for life is too risky, or it costs too much. My response is simple. I will never back down from protecting the innocent and the unborn, unquote. Reynolds added, quote, the work of building a robust culture of life that supports new and expecting mothers continues this session. She mentioned her proposal to increase the coverage of postpartum care for new moms under Medicaid from two months to 12 months. Iowa is one of only a handful of states that has not implemented the extension, which was made available to states in the American Rescue Plan Act. To accomplish this, Reynolds's office said she would propose changing the eligibility for Medicaid coverage of birth and postpartum care to 215% of the federal poverty line from 375% under current law. While the benefits would be extended, fewer would qualify, keeping Medicaid costs for pregnancy and postpartum care neutral. Reynolds, in her condition of the state address earlier this month, also proposed a program to connect Iowans in need with faith-based organizations and the private sector and steer them away from government assistance. Byrd said, quote, All life has value and must be protected. And, as a mom, as a pro-life woman, said she is thankful to get to defend our heartbeat law before the Iowa Supreme Court, unquote. Quote, we know that we're going to be successful, the Iowa Attorney General told the crowd gathered in the Capitol Rotunda for the annual Iowa Rally for Life. Quote, we just have to keep working and never give up. We're never going to give up when it comes to doing the right thing, unquote. Byrd said all legal briefs from supporters and opponents of Iowa's abortion ban are due to be filed with the Iowa Supreme Court by the end of this month. She said she anticipates the court will hear oral arguments this spring and that a ruling is likely by the end of June. 
Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart, in a statement said the U.S. Supreme Court's decision that overturned Roe v. Wade is a, quote, stark reminder of just how important it is to vote in every election, unquote. Hart said Iowa Democrats, quote, stand with the majority of Iowans who want to secure our fundamental freedoms by safeguarding the right to choose, unquote. Quote, we all must continue our work to ensure Iowa women have access to the reproductive health care that they need and put people over politics by protecting these critical rights we'd all held for 50 years before Dobbs, Hart said. Should the court uphold Iowa's six-week abortion ban, Iowa Democrats say it would force Iowans to travel to neighboring states like Illinois and Minnesota to receive life-saving reproductive health care. Planned Parenthood North Central States said it has seen a nearly 100% increase in patients traveling from outside of its five-state region to get an abortion, including an increase in patients coming from states like Texas, Florida, and Missouri, which passed laws making abortion illegal in nearly all or most cases, and in states that have banned abortion, maternal and infant mortality are on the rise, sexually transmitted infection rates are climbing, and health care deserts are growing, said Ruth Richardson, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States. It operates health centers and provides abortion care in Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Nebraska. Quote, everyone has a right to health care, and your zip code shouldn't dictate the care you can access, said Sarah Traxler, chief medical officer at Planned Parenthood North Central States, said in a statement, quote, some patients have to travel hundreds of miles to see me. They deserve to have access to abortion care in their own communities, unquote. Attorney General calls for stiffer penalties for assaults on police. Story written by Caleb McCullough of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. People who assault police officers, firefighters, and other protected professionals would receive heightened sentences under a bill Iowa lawmakers advanced on Monday. The bill, House Study Bill 523, would raise the penalties for assaults on a number of public safety employees and officials to as high as Class C felony if the offender intends to cause serious injury or displays a dangerous weapon. The charge would be a Class D felony if the offender causes bodily injury or mental illness. Those charges would be hiked up from Class D felony and aggravated misdemeanor, respectively. The bill would heighten penalties for assaults on the following occupations. Peace officer or civilian employee of a law enforcement agency, jailer or correctional staff, member or employee of the Board of Parole, health care provider, employee of Department of Health and Human Services, employee of Department of Revenue, National Guard member engaged in official duties, civilian employee of a fire department or firefighter. The bill was proposed by Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd's office. Byrd, a former prosecutor and county attorney, said the current penalties for the offenses are far too lenient. 
Quote, I want to do all we can to increase respect for law enforcement. You do a tough job. Respect for our first responders and others who do very difficult work and are just trying to help people, unquote. The bill makes other assaults, including spitting on a police officer or another official, an aggravated misdemeanor, raising them from a simple misdemeanor. A person found guilty of that crime would be subject to a mandatory minimum of seven days in jail. An inmate who spits on an employee of a correctional facility would be subject to a Class D felony. Ray Reynolds, the director of fire and EMS at the Nevada Fire Department, said the bill was necessary. He became emotional recounting responding to an arson fire in 2022. When he and the police responded, the perpetrator attempted to strangle the officer and take his gun, Reynolds said. And when Reynolds intervened, he was also assaulted. Quote, I got bit, I got spat on, and the guy got two simple misdemeanors, or a serious misdemeanor, he said. Melissa Spade, a lobbyist for the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees Union, said she wanted to ensure that all employees in correctional facilities are covered under the new penalties. She also said she wants lawmakers to ensure that incarcerated people who assault correctional staff receive a full penalty rather than a light charge. Quote, somebody who's in prison and insults a correctional officer, that happens daily, she said. Quote, are we going to be putting those individuals through the system? Unquote. Assaults on correctional staff increased between 2020 and 2022, KCCI reported last year. Two inmates at the Animosa State Penitentiary killed a nurse and correctional officer in 2021 during an attempted escape. A Class C felony is punishable up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $13,360, while the Class D felony is punishable by up to five years in prison and a fine of up to $10,245. An aggravated misdemeanor is punishable by up to two years in prison and a fine of up to $8,540. The bill was approved by two Republicans in a three-person subcommittee on Monday. Democratic Representative Eleanor Levine of Iowa City asked Byrd whether there was evidence the increased penalties would lower incidents of assault. She did not vote to advance the bill, saying it, quote, sounds like there's some work to do on the bill, unquote. Byrd did not point to any data to suggest raising the penalties would lower offenses, but she said she believed it would deter people from assaulting officers. Quote, based on my personal experience, I think it would reduce assaults, Byrd said. Quote, particularly that seven-day mandatory minimum. Because if someone thinks they'll just get probation and assault a peace officer, I don't think that's right, unquote. State Representative Jeff Shipley, a Republican from Birmingham, supported the bill and said he would be interested in tracking whether the change leads to fewer offenses. Quote, I would never want to have law enforcement in the situation we've described, Shipley said. I think there's an argument you can even make that the penalties even more severe, just considering how vile some of these offenses are, unquote. 
CBS icon Charles Osgood dies at 91. Story by the Associated Press and begins with a photograph of Charles Osgood. Dateline, New York. Charles Osgood, a five-time Emmy Award-winning journalist who anchored CBS Sunday Morning for more than two decades, hosted the long-running radio program The Osgood File and was referred to as CBS News's poet-in-residence, has died. He was 91. CBS reported that Osgood died Tuesday at his home in Saddle River, New Jersey, and that the cause was dementia, according to his family. Osgood was an erudite, warm broadcaster with a flair for music who could write essays in light verse as well as report hard news. He worked radio and television with equal facility and signed off by telling listeners, quote, I'll see you on the radio, unquote. To say there's no one like Charles Osgood is an understatement, Rand Morrison, executive director of Sunday Morning, said in a statement, quote, He embodied the heart and soul of Sunday Morning. At the piano, Charlie put our lives to music. Truly, he was one of a kind in every sense, unquote. Quote, CBS News Sunday Morning will honor Osgood with a special broadcast Sunday. Osgood took over Sunday morning after the beloved Charles Kuralt retired in 1994. Osgood seemingly had an impossible act to follow, but with his folksy erudition and his slightly bookish, bow-tied style, he immediately clicked with viewers who continued to embrace the program as an unhurried TV magazine. Osgood, who graduated from Fordham University in 1954, started as a classic music DJ in Washington, D.C., served in the Army, and retired to help start WHCT in Hartford, Connecticut. In 1963, he got an on-air position at ABC Radio in New York. In 1967, he took a job as a reporter on the CBS-owned New York News Radio Station, News Radio 88. Then, one fateful weekend, he was summoned to fill in at the anchor desk for the TV network's Saturday newscast. In 1971, he joined the CBS network and launched what would be known as the Osgood File. In 1990, he was inducted into the radio division of the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame. In 2008, he was awarded the National Association of Broadcasters Distinguished Service Award. He won four Emmy Awards and earned a fifth Lifetime Achievement Honor in 2017. UNI Tallgrass Prairie Center programs featured in January's National Geographic magazine. Story written by Melody Parker. Dateline Cedar Falls. The University of Northern Iowa's Tallgrass Prairie Center programs are highlighted in the January 2024 issue of National Geographic magazine. The cover story, Flight of the Monarchs, written by Michelle Nihus, with photography by Jamie Rojo, focuses on organizations and people who are working to help the monarch butterfly in its annual migration from Minnesota to Mexico. Quote, we were thrilled. We received eight advanced copies of the magazine in December 
and work in the office stopped immediately as we flipped to the story, said Laura Jackson, Tallgrass Prairie Center director. Quote, we were so pleased. Nat Geo did such a wonderful job. It's a comprehensive story that covers the migratory path and whole lifespan of monarchs, unquote. The article summarizes the center's programs and efforts to increase habitat in the upper Midwest. The Irvine Prairie near Dysert is featured a 292-acre prairie in progress where more than 100 diverse species of native prairie plants have been introduced since 2018. Managed by the Tallgrass Prairie Center, it provides UNI students opportunities for hands-on research in prairie restoration and management. It is quickly becoming one of the most well-documented and diverse prairies in eastern Iowa. There also are images of prairie strips on Dick Sloan's farm near Rowley, where several UNI field days have taken place. Jackson describes the beautiful and distinctive orange and black butterfly as, quote, the panda of the insect world, unquote. Quote, everybody recognizes and loves the monarch, so it draws attention to conservation. We call it an umbrella species because when we provide and protect their habitat, we're not only providing joy for people who love these butterflies, but the habitat embraces the lives of other species of insects and birds. TPC belongs to the Monarch Joint Venture Habitat Program, a nonprofit organization that has built a diverse partnership between federal and state agencies, academic programs, community groups, businesses, and nonprofits who are working in concert to conserve monarch butterflies and other pollinators. Jackson credits MJV founder and former director Karen Oberhauser for referring the center to the National Geographic author and photographer. Quote, she surely shared contacts with a lot of good conservation efforts around the country, but I think they wanted to zero in on Iowa because of the importance of this region for monarch breeding habitat, Jackson explained. A prairie species, the monarch requires grassland, wildflowers, and milkweed for food and breeding. There has been a tremendous loss of habitat where monarchs lay eggs and milkweed to feed caterpillars, she explained. Readers with a National Geographic subscription may read the article online. Printed copies can be purchased at brick-and-mortar and online bookstores or ordered at www.nationalgeographic.com forward slash magazine. And now, listeners, we want to just take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 24th on IRIS. That's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this announcement. What if, instead of looking down on people struggling with using drugs, we saw them as people instead? People who have interests and passions, people who have loved ones they care about, and loved ones who care about them. They have a very powerful illness, and they need help and support so they can live the life they want and deserve. See the person, not the addiction. 
Learn more at yourliveiowa.org. Brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. And now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from Storm Lake Times Pilot, written by the editor Art Cullen. The title is Avoiding Facts, Reality Check. Two-thirds of Iowa Republican caucus-goers think Donald Trump won the 2020 election and would vote for him again even if he were convicted of trying to overthrow the Democratic process. The caucus turnout was half that of a Hawkeye football game at Kinnick Stadium. These are the hardest core of hardcore party faithful who braved sub-zero weather to cast their lot with Trump. Note that about half of those attended voted for someone else, namely Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, in about equal measure. About a quarter of Haley supporters said they might vote for President Biden. These are mainly independents and what is left of moderate Republicans in Polk, Lynn, Story, and Johnson counties, urban and collegiate. Buena Vista County predictably was stronger for Trump than the rest of Iowa. The U.S. Senate confirmed Biden's election despite the insurrection. Architects of Trump's plan have admitted for the court record that they knew his scheme to overthrow the election was in vain because the vote was clean. Courts ruled against Trump time and again, even among judges he appointed. The Colorado Supreme Court went so far as to find that Trump actively participated in the insurrection and barred him from the state ballot, which is being appealed which all goes by way of saying that Biden won fair and square. He won the popular vote and the electoral vote. It has been validated by the political and judicial process, neither of which hold trust with the MAGA crowd, obviously. After winning the Iowa caucuses, he appeared in a New York courtroom over a jury finding that he sexually assaulted a woman. The question is how much he has to pay from your political donations. He made that court appearance his opening salvo for the general election campaign. People who believe that Trump won the election and is being persecuted over it deny the facts because he is their type of guy, a fighter. Nine of ten caucus goers think big change is needed, and Trump says he will deliver it by raining retribution on his political opponents. The leading issue for the Monday night crowd was immigration. Trump wants to round up immigrants, put them in detention camps, and then deport them. An estimated 10 million or more. Storm Lake would empty out. Trump says they poison our blood. We say immigrants saved Storm Lake and Denison from the fate suffered by so many other Iowa County seats. Depopulation and disappointment followed by anger. Get real. Trump said he would build the wall. He got a third of it done. Refugees cut through it with torches and walked through, then are apprehended and detained for asylum hearings. Wildlife gets stuck and die in it. Those are the facts, too. Another fact. We have been arguing about immigration since 1986. At least twice, bipartisan groups of senators agreed on comprehensive immigration reform that would beef up security and processing. Each time it failed 
because of the House Freedom Caucus, the most conservative Republicans. Whose fault is it if the border is unmanageable? The very legislators who tie themselves to Trump and a lot of Democrats who also like to use immigration as a cudgel. The record is clear for anyone who wants to inspect. Some people prefer to build their own realities for the sake of a pointless argument that leads to more division and dysfunction. If we are supposed to function as a two-party democracy, then we must adhere to some basic facts. Joe Biden won the 2020 election, without a doubt. Donald Trump committed fraud and sexual assault, courts have ruled, and he will be bound up in court over charges that he tried to subvert the electoral process. Supporters who deny reality will be forced to confront it by the majority of voters, about 60%, who believe that Trump committed crimes against the republic. Further, most of us understand that Joe Biden participated in immigration policy but did not create the border crisis. That is a long, complicated story that goes back to the Alamo. He is trying to manage as well as any president has without talking about shooting immigrants, sending their Marines to Veracruz, or holding innocents in detention like livestock. Another vexatious fact. The economy is improving. Wages are rising faster than consumer prices. It is beginning to show up in polling. Biden will be a formidable opponent against an indicted Trump bound up in court. Trump's extrajudicial messianic rants may play well to those suffering from misinformation, but they are not the majority. Biden could win Iowa if he tried. The reality is that Trump is not the strongest candidate, but that doesn't matter to Republican voters. They should get a grip on the facts before they lose another national election. Iowa needs to stop creeping secrecy over names. This written by Randy Evans of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council. The increasing secrecy by Iowa law enforcement and their lawyers about identifying people by name raises important questions underlying public confidence in the critical work of first responders. The question deals with whether police can or should refuse to identify persons involved in incidents and crimes. Despite Iowa's history of openness about crimes and accidents, with increasing frequency, public officials refuse to provide names of people who end up in these events, whether as victims or perpetrators. A few examples illustrate this issue. Des Moines police officers encountered a tense standoff early in the morning after Christmas in 2022. The incident involved a 16-year-old boy with a handgun. The events unfolded inside the apartment where his grandmother lived. His mother and stepfather lived a couple of doors away. In the five minutes after officers arrived, having been summoned by the stepfather, Officers pleaded 70 times with the teen to put down the gun, according to a report from the Iowa Attorney General's office. The standoff ended when the youth raised the gun toward officers, resulting in them firing 14 shots that struck him in the head and torso. The Attorney General's report identified the dead boy only by his initials, T.J. Des Moines City attorneys ordered police not to make public 
their body camera video from the standoff, or the teen's name, despite the willingness of officials to do so, the lawyers claimed releasing the name and video would violate the Iowa's juvenile justice law because the teen had not been charged with any crime in connection with the standoff. Of course, authorities seldom prosecute the dead. Keep this supposed legal analysis in mind and think back to the mass shootings at Perry High School. Within hours of the tragedy, law officers released the name of Dylan Butler, 17, the student who fatally shot one student and injured four other students and three school employees before he took his own life. The day after the shootings, officials made public the name of Emir Jolliffe, 11, a sixth grader who died from gunshot wounds. This week, high school principal Dan Marburger, 56, hailed as a hero for protecting the students, died from his wounds. No one asserted Perry Police and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation violated any statute by making public the shooter's name or the name of the sixth grader who was killed. However, officials have not made public the names of any of the survivors who were injured. It is nonsense to believe officials acted improperly or against public interest in identifying the shooter or in naming the sixth grader or the principal. For anyone to assert otherwise makes a mockery of government transparency and implies Iowans are so detached from their communities that they do not want to know who is involved in this tragedy. But think back to last May and news of a tragic accident in Iowa City when a motor vehicle struck and fatally injured an Iowa National Guard soldier. Corey Height of Cedar Rapids was jogging near West High School when the vehicle hit him. Iowa City Police refused for more than a month to confirm the identity of the driver, the 16-year-old son of University of Iowa men's basketball coach Fran McCaffrey, because he is a juvenile and had not been charged with any legal infraction. Then, the younger McCaffrey was convicted of failure to yield charge and was fined $1,000. Then go back to the weekend before the Iowa City accident, when two classmates of the young McCaffrey were involved in what state troopers said was a street race. The two teens, both 17, failed to heed the stop sign and collided with a car traveling through the intersection. The car's driver, Jennifer Russell, 22 of Waterloo, died a short time later. The names of the two street racers and a passenger in one of their cars were released the next day by the Iowa State Patrol. Cases where police withhold names continue to increase, with the secrecy maintained for inexplicable reasons. Some cases involve fatal traffic accidents. Others involve people shot by police. Some involve people who died in a drowning or similar tragedy. All these incidents raise important questions. Why are some people's names made public, while other people's names are not? The legislature enacted a law more than 40 years ago requiring law enforcement agencies to release the date, time, specific location, and what the law calls the immediate facts and circumstances about a crime or other incident to which police are sent. A 1990 legal opinion from the Iowa Attorney General 
reminds government officials there is a presumption of disclosure of these facts, quote, except in those unusual circumstances where disclosure would plainly and seriously jeopardize an investigation or pose a clear and present danger to the safety of an individual, unquote. The opinion stated victim names are one of the, quote, immediate facts covered by the disclosure requirement. The lack of consistency from town to town, county to county, and within state government raises the specter of favoritism. This inconsistency leads to suspicion young McCaffrey's case received special treatment because of his famous father, something the two street racers did not receive because their families were not well known. Indeed, some in Iowa City speculate the racers got different treatment because they are black. Keeping the actions of government employees transparent and open to scrutiny is vital to maintaining public trust and confidence in our government institutions. Accountability requires an informed public that obtains reasonable information from public officials rather than relying on rumor, gossip, and theories woven on social media. Another important element to releasing victim names often gets overlooked. Iowans have seen an outpouring of emotional and financial support that has warmed the hearts and tempered the pain of the victims of the Perry School tragedy in the death of the Iowa National Guard sergeant in Iowa City and in the recent drowning of a nine-year-old boy in a pond in Waukee, where police refused to identify him. All of this underscores why access to accurate information from law enforcement is so important. It lies at the heart of being a community of caring and informed neighbors. Now here's a guest opinion from the New York Times, written by Margaret Brinkle. When the sky offers an unexpected gift of time. Middle Tennessee has one metaphorical foot in the Midwest and one in the Deep South. We expect a certain amount of weather whiplash here, even without factoring in the extremities of climate change. But January has been a carnival ride. Thunderstorms and tornadoes, followed by brutal cold, and then by snow, the likes of which we haven't seen in years. Eight inches at our house, up to ten in other Nashville neighborhoods. Last week, temperatures dropped into the single digits at night and didn't rise much higher during the day. On Thursday afternoon, it finally got warm enough to soften the streets to slush, but another hard freeze turned them back to ice on Thursday night, then back to single digits, lows for the weekend. This kind of weather is alarming, even for one who has come to love winter and worries that it is disappearing entirely into the maw of the climate calamity. When it snows in the south, with its dearth of snow plows and its even greater dearth of snow-experienced drivers, ordinary life comes to a screeching halt. Many people lose work they can't afford to lose, while others risk their lives to get to jobs they aren't allowed to miss. Then there's the urgent question of how to protect the unhoused. Where can hundreds of homeless people go to keep warm when the high is 12 degrees? Weather like this is a risk for wildlife, too. With ice and snow, food sources become inaccessible 
just when many creatures, everybody who doesn't rely on hibernation, brumation, or torpor to survive winter, are rapidly burning calories to stay warm. Just before the winter storm hit, I topped off all of our seed feeders and stocked up on high-fat, high-protein foods like suet and peanuts and live mealworms. Shelter is also a struggle for wild animals, especially since we lost so many evergreens to last winter's terrible storm. So I spread some evergreen boughs across the top of our brush pile to add a layer of protection for the creatures who hide there. My husband hauled home our neighbor's discarded Christmas trees and leaned them against the fence for some reason. We left the tool shed door cracked for creatures who prefer an actual roof, and it's good we did. When the storm hit, it brought more snow than Nashville typically sees in a year. The next morning it was 10 degrees with a wind chilled of zero, and the snow was still falling. All was stillness. Not a squirrel in the trees, not a bird on the feeders. I checked all my backyard neighbors and saw not a single one. Quote, this is the time to be slow, the Irish poet John O'Donohue wrote. Quote, Lie low to the wall until the bitter winter passes. Animals understand this truth better than we do. But they came out ravenous when the snow stopped falling. Along the deck rails, squirrels fashioned bunting in the snowpack, a squirrel-sized dip for each hop as one squirrel after another followed the same path to the peanuts. For the better part of a week, we were hermits. The calendar wiped clean of all appointments. School was canceled from my schoolteacher husband. Also canceled were all the meetings I'd set up for myself in a New Year's resolution to seek embodied connection. By the third snowbound day, my gregarious husband was growing antsy. But I am a hermit by nature. I especially love a hermitage built of silence and snow. Oh, the joy of standing at the window to watch the gobbling, and sometimes the sharing, and very often the stealing, as every bird in the zip code showed up to feast on seeds. It was too cold to put out the live mealworms, but I kept replenishing the seeds. When I couldn't safely reach the tray feeders in the yard or the tube feeders next to the deck, I spread towels on top of the snow and covered them with shelled peanuts and whole peanuts, sunflower hearts and whole sunflower seeds, thistle and safflower and suet balls. All avian creation set up camp in our yard. Redbirds and bluebirds, eastern towhees and dark-eyed juncos and white-throated sparrows, house finches and goldfinches, Carolina wrens and Carolina chickadees, tufted titmice and white-breasted nuthatches, blue jays and mockingbirds, and morning doves, and nearly every kind of backyard woodpecker, downy woodpeckers and hairy woodpeckers, red-bellied woodpeckers, and northern flickers, grackles and starlings, and brown-headed cowbirds, and red-winged blackbirds. The birds were a flurry of motion set against a tableau of stillness, jostling and rustling, flitting between the seeds on the ground and the water in the heated bird bath, rising as one when I opened the back door to take out the dog, diving for cover when the blue jays 
sent out a warning that hawks were on the wing. In Memphis, people were dancing in the snowy streets. In Wilson County and in Knoxville, river otters seemed to be doing the same thing. From every room in our house, I could hear sledders squealing on the hill just past our house. Their dogs leaped joyfully beside them, at least until they discovered the suet balls in our mealworm feeders. We didn't mind. It's hard to fault a cold dog for grabbing a snack made mostly of peanut butter. In The Book of More Delights, the poet and essayist Ross Gay writes about the gift of time that opens up whenever he unexpectedly arrives at an appointment early or when the person he plans to meet is running late. Such unplanned changes in agenda can feel, he writes, quote, like the universe just dropped a bouquet of time, an often a luminous bouquet of time, in your lap, unquote. That's what a snow day feels like here. A snow day in the American South on an overheating planet is exactly like an extravagant bouquet of luminous time that comes out of nowhere and lasts as long as it cares to, on a schedule we cannot entirely predict, much less control. Last week the sky offered an unexpected gift of time. Thank God I had no choice but to take it. Next, New Sturgis Group organizes after scare overman events parade kids way might not happen. The story written by Andy Malone. Cedar Falls. The Cedar Falls Celebration Weekend reboot is underway. Pete Downs, former board vice president, and 10 other former board members have formed the Sturgis Falls Overman Entertainment Committee and are working hard to organize the Overman Park Activities Parade, Kids Way, and Arts and Crafts Festival for 2024. Quote, it's still fresh and very fluid right now. It is a bit of organized chaos, said Downs. But we knew we had to do something, and knew we couldn't let the community down. Sturgis is one piece of small-town Americana, unquote. People were worried the events might not happen after being placed on hold this fall by Jay Stoddard, board president of Sturgis Falls Celebration Incorporated, the nonprofit responsible for organizing the largest admission-free annual city celebration in the state. A member of the board since 1985, Stoddard, 78, contended the organization was in trouble financially and had the funds to cover only the Gateway Park portion of the event. He lost almost the entire board, including Downs, to frustrations largely having to do with an alleged lack of financial transparency. The overall progress stemmed from conversations with other community leaders, including Mayor Danny Laudick and former Mayor Jim Brown, Executive Director of the Cedar Falls Economic Development Corporation. Downs had been on the Sturgis Board since 2007. He is now the board president of the recently formed nonprofit Sturgis Falls Entertainment Group, Incorporated, acting as an umbrella organization for all events that weekend, like Cedar Basin Music Festival and events at the River Place Plaza. The nonprofit will ideally be made up of different committees with chairs 
who would serve on the Sturgis Falls Entertainment Group Board. We are proceeding full steam ahead in 2024 without interruption like it's any one of the last 45 years, said Bob Seymour, a music festival board member and now board vice president of Sturgis Falls Entertainment Group. Quote, We're coming together to see if we can cooperate, share costs with each other, share volunteers, bands, and security, insurance costs, and see if there are other ways we can become more efficient. Unquote. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, January 24th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around Iowa that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And until next time, and quoting Charles Osgood here, we'll see you on the radio.